Why don't you grab your Bibles as you're settling in? Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, even through the hard passages. The hard passages of the prophecy of Revelation and the prophecy of the end of the world as we know it. No skipping over verses aloud. And so we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 7. Now we'll ask the Lord uh, for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, admittedly, these are words that are difficult to understand in a lot of places. Here in a prophecy with a lot of symbols and a lot of different takes. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd help us not to be overwhelmed with the prophecy that talks about the second coming and the doing away of this world in preference for a new world, which you will establish. Help us, Father, to um, have ears that can hear and eyes that can see and a heart that can understand the truth that you're, you're speaking to the church. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been talking about some fascinating stuff haven't we? I mean, as fantastic as it may seem uh, to some, the Bible has these unbelievable uh, passages that just stretch your imagination. Like, for example, and I quote, we who are alive at the coming of the Lord until the coming of the Lord shall be caught up into the heavens to be with the Lord. And this event is called, as we've been speaking about it, the rapture, which is just the translation of the verb to be caught up. And, and now it's just plainly stated in that verse and others like it. One moment, believers are here. The next moment, we are not. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, we are caught up. Now, the book of Revelation, the prophecy that's unfolding before us, I believe explains why the church is caught up and out of harm's way. Because the last seven years of human history as we know it, called the Great Tribulation, is a time of unprecedented and unparalleled judgment upon the earth where the Lord is specifically dealing with the Christ-rejecting nations of the world and with his own people, Israel. In fact, the Great Tribulation is also called the time of Israel's trouble. It's really Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, which says it's a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another name for Israel. It's all about the Lord speaking to his people, trying to get them on board with his program. And um, the last two chapters, of course, or three chapters, Revelation 20 through 21 then, after the judgment uh, called the Great Tribulation, uh, there's the return of Christ, a fulfillment of our prayers, thy kingdom come, paradise restored. Now, you might be wondering if the church is suddenly removed from the earth and every believer's uh, pulled from the game, and we are the ones who are preaching the gospel, and without somebody preaching the gospel, how could you be saved? And if the Holy Spirit is in some sense withdrawn, as Paul seems to indicate in a verse in Second Thessalonians, 
And the Holy Spirit's responsible for the second birth. He's the one who makes us alive inside. So if the church is missing and the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, then how are people saved in the Great Tribulation? I am so glad you keep asking these questions. <laughs> because uh, chapter 7, our text this morning, is going to deal precisely with that issue. Now, we're going to meet in chapter 7 um, two distinct groups of people who are living in the perilous days of the Great Tribulation. The first group we'll meet in the opening verses are Jews who have converted and are preaching the gospel on earth. And then the second group, starting at verse 9, will be Gentiles who are dying for the gospel. They are being martyred. So you have two groups, Jews who are preaching the gospel and Gentiles who are dying for the gospel. Uh, let's meet both groups. Let's meet the Jewish evangelists first. All right? So verse 1 of chapter 7. Now after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east. Having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had, given, who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now he delineates that really clearly here. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. The tribe of Asher, Asher 12,000. The tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, Simeon, 12,000, Levi, 12,000, Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now, if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, some nice Jewish boys. Now, we're going to talk about these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Uh, but here in chapter 7, we have what scholars call, the, call a parenthetical chapter. Really, the action here in the Great Tribulation is, is paused. And we have some information that gives us greater detail about what's going on. And so it's kind of a welcome reprieve from last chapter where the first seals were opened Six out of seven of the first seals were opened, and uh, all hell broke loose. You'll recall that the, the Antichrist came uh, riding forth to conquer with uh, deception and delusion. The fiery red horse, global wars that seemed to be nuclear, a black horse, famine, and economic worldwide collapse, and the pale or light green uh, horse representing death and a staggering figure dropped 
uh, 1,500,000,000 lives lost. A quarter of the Earth's population will perish during those days. And so uh, a welcome reprieve from that here in chapter 7, we are going to hear of something less dramatic. And so uh, the first seals have been opened. Let's take a look at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls again from chapter 6 through chapter 19, which is most of the book, deals with seven years. We get that number from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Seven-year period, and how John is given to divide that seven years up, it's seven seals. We've opened six. When you open number seven, next chapter, you'll find that all the trumpets are in that one. And so the trumpets then are opened, and number seven trumpet, you find out all the bulls are in the seventh trumpet. Now, uh, this helps us understand how the tribulation is flowing, but don't get too confident about seeing this as a chronological sequential deal with first you have the seals and then you have the trumpets and then you have the bulls. So easy. 21 linear <laughs> sequential events. It's not so easy. So let me, uh, thank you for that slide. Let me give you a quote about how we ought to understand the unfolding of the chronology of the tribulation in chapters 6 through 19. Ray Stedman, great Bible teacher, he's with the Lord now. The unfolding of the great tribulation, chapter 6 through 19, cannot be seen in a strict linear sequential chronology. Visions that are dealing with eternity must have some ebb and flow uh, as eternal realities supersede our normal and one-dimensional understanding of time. So, in other words, it's not that there's no chronological uh, order in these chapters, because there is some, but it's that there's more than chronology happening because you're dealing with heaven and then earth and then heaven and then earth and so there's a lot of fading in fading out cutting back because why time in heaven is a little bit difficult for us to understand it just doesn't work the same way and so i think we just need to be flexible when we can't understand. Let me show you what i mean by going back and forth in the book of revelation with heaven and earth Here's how it works. The opening chapters, earth, then four and five, heaven. Six, part of six is earth, then heaven. Earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven. The whole book. And this is very important because first of all, it's saying, listen, uh, the things on earth are controlled and sovereignly overseen by heaven. So that's the first thing that is saying. It's very important to know. And the first thing we saw in the opening chapters was God seated on the throne. There's a throne in heaven, and he's calling the shots. And so that's important. But the secondary uh, indirect consequence of this is that uh, time and sequence is a little bit harder to follow as we kind of go back and forth like that. So with that said... Picture it this way. 
like a good movie. You're into the movie, you know, almost a quarter of the way, and then suddenly there's a cutaway to the past. And now you're getting necessary information about what is now being presented, though it's before uh, the fact of where you're at in the exact movie. I hope that helps you. That helps me. I always compare things to movies, and that seems to help. So now we flash back here in Chapter 7 to a time uh, kind of known as the lull before the storm. So last we heard in Chapter 6... You remember the mountains were collapsing, uh, the stars were falling, and the islands were being submerged. But this now, obviously you just read, is going back to a time before those judgments were able to harm the earth. And so we're having a flashback, I think in order to tell you how God was going to do his work during the tribulation. Well, how can anybody survive this? How can, where's the church? Who's doing the gospel work there? And so uh, the four angels in verse one are in strategic positions, restraining the, the, uh, the wind, making things very still. Now, last week I mentioned the warm summer evenings in New England where I grew up. The thunderstorms would come really suddenly. And another thing about that, because it goes with the lull before the storm here. Uh, we'd be out in the backyard having a barbecue or whatever, uh, and suddenly everything goes quiet. Everything becomes really super still in an eerie way. I mean, even the birds stop singing and seem to fly off to their nests because they're smart, smarter than us probably. So sure enough, the downpour wasn't very far away. And apparently somewhere, perhaps in the early days of the tribulation when the Antichrist brokers a false peace, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, while people are saying peace, safety, it's in those days suddenly like a thief in the night, the end comes and the day of the Lord, which is another name for the great tribulation, is upon them. Now, it, it's in these early days that the lull comes and, and everybody keenly perceives this stillness and, and everyone on the earth will take notice. I mean, how can you not? Not a leaf will stir on the planet. Not a tree will bend with a breeze. Nothing, no ocean breezes, they will stop and the waves on the sea will be stilled and everybody will have a heads up. What's about to happen? Now, scholars say that there's this lull before the storm for a couple redemptive purposes and our God is redemptive. Uh, the Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked but wants everybody to turn and live that's his heart. God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. That's a quote from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. So the first thing is, is that he's giving people, he's pressing pause during the great tribulation and saying, you want to reflect? You want some time? Because there's, uh, everybody knows there's more to come. You, you feel it. That's the symbolism here. They know, wow, here it's coming, I'm thinking, I'm reflecting a little time out, but it's apparently during this time, verses 2 through 8, that God readies a ministry team 
who will uh, require some distinction and supernatural protection. And so we're going to learn about these 144,000 who some people call kosher Billy Grahams uh, that come to faith in the Lord. So the first thing I want to say about God preparing this ministry team of 144,000 people is, is that he's just not willing that any perish. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's also interesting that the Lord does not leave himself without a witness in Acts 14 and verse 17. What does that mean? It means that the Lord will always, in every generation, leave the light on. He will always make a way for people of every generation and every people group and every language to be able to find him. That's what it means. And so when the church is gone, there'll be a way to find the Lord. And interesting that he has to find witnesses because his witnesses, the church, he calls us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Matthew chapter 5. You are a city on a hill. You calling the church the light of the world. If the light of the world and his witnesses in the earth, the salt of the earth, is removed, how then is anybody going to hear the gospel? Because he never leaves himself without a witness. Well, he turns to plan B. No, we were plan B, the Gentiles. He goes back to plan A. You remember in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10, who does, what does he say to the Jews? He says, you... My people are my witnesses, my chosen servants. And here's what he says in chapter 49 of Isaiah. I will also make you, Israel, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, that didn't work the first time. They fumbled the ball and they rejected the quarterback and actually more than rejected him. And then the ball got thrown to who? The Gentiles, the church. And we ran with it for 2,000 yards or years. <laughs> with the church team gone, it's back to Team Israel. And this time, there will be some success. Now, how did they, how did they get saved? Well, there's a couple ideas. Number one. You know, uh, a billion or so people just disappearing, called the rapture, that may have some impact on them. Num number two, there are two witnesses who are preaching for three and a half years in Jerusalem. You will meet them in chapter 11. Bible scholars say, sounds an awful lot like Moses and Elijah. They preach in where? Jerusalem. They are Jews themselves, and they are preaching, and they are indestructible. People try to kill them, and they cannot. And it says, a lovely verse, it says, if anybody does try to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and destroys them. Now, uh, it just possibly being words spoken and God honoring that, but what a time to be alive. And apparently, 144,000 Jews exposed to the two witnesses, perhaps. Or, you know, did God just pull an apostle Paul on him, you know, and just say, hey, boom, 
Open your eyes. I mean, he's God and he does things like that. You hear about it all the time. Whatever the case, these Jews are becoming Christians. Now, listen, don't let me hear somebody say, that's impossible. You know, when you hear a Jewish Christian. Well, that's what they will become. They will become Hebrew Jews who embrace Christ as Christians. Now, when I hear somebody, as I've told you, say to me with their trump card, don't tell me about the gospel, they'll say, you know why? Because I'm Jewish. And then I've got a trump card, too, that I pull out, and I say, oh, yeah, me, too. And then I lay that down. (laughs) And then they say to me, that's impossible. You're not. What? (laughs) Oy vey. Come on. (laughs) Seriously. You know, they don't doubt that I'm a Jew. They'll say, you know, you look just like my rabbi. You know, (laughs) they don't have a problem with that part. They have a problem with me embracing Christ and still calling myself a Jew. Like I should tear up my Hebrew card. Listen, Paul the Apostle, what does he say in Philippians chapter 3? I'm a Hebrew. I go back to the tribe of Benjamin. He says, but I love Christ. I believe in Christ. Therefore, by birth, I'm a Jew By second birth, I'm a Christian. That makes him a Hebrew Christian. Amen? I mean, that's not that hard to do. But And and these are 144,000 types of Paul the Apostle, those kinds of people like Peter, James, and John, all Jews, all Christians, Jewish Christians, or sometimes called completed Jews. Now, some things are hazy in Revelation, admittedly, and some things are not. And this, the identity of the 144,000, is not hazy. He goes to great lengths to say, uh, by the way, in case you think you're one of them, let me just show you how you're not, okay? Because here's who they are. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. There's a pattern here. And then you add them all up, and guess what number you get? 144,000. And who are they? You'd have to be a Jew. You'd have to be related to the 12 tribes, and you'd have to be living in the Great Tribulation. Now, some groups have just claimed, you know what? That's a nice number. That's us. And so in the early days, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they claimed that their entire organization in their early days was that 144,000. A couple problems came up. Number one, they're not Jews, and they never were Jews. Number two is 144,001 created a problem because they grew past 144,000. So they said, first class is closed. We'll have second class. I'm not kidding. Look it up. Second class is for the earthly group. So the heavenly groups closed. The second group, the earthly group, is now open. And that should handle all the rest of us. The problem, 288,001 Jehovah's Witness, and it happened. What do we do now? Well, first class is closed. Second class is closed. We opened another class. And the third class is called the servant's class. Now, from now on, If you become a Jehovah's Witness, you enter, you only have one option, 
the servants class because first class and second class have been closed. Well, you know what? That doesn't work. <laughs> and so we're going to move on here. Uh, it's not our business to, uh, it is our business to uh, rightly divide the word of God. And if somebody's saying that they are the 144,000, you better show me how you are related to the tribes of Israel. Amen? All right, moving on. So it's not the church. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. They're always mutually exclusive terms, always and forever in the Bible. How can that be the church if he's calling their names out? These are Jews. Now, these 144,000, 44,000 are sealed, the Bible says. Now, they get a mark on their forehead. Whether this is literal or figurative, God is setting them apart, distinguishing them as belonging to him uh, in a special way and for a special purpose. Now, we know all about being sealed, don't we? I mean, it's in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, having believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So that's sort of the idea here, except they are being sealed to to protect them in the days of living in cataclysmic judgment so that they can serve the Lord and survive through those perilous times. So, I mean, there's a correlation between don't harm anybody no no harmful judgments until they are protected with the seal of god so the implication is that they are as ray steadman calls them christ commandos i mean they are going to be able to uh, withstand and live through all of that chaos because they are sealed with the seal of god now i did a little research about getting a mark on your forehead as a mark or a sign and uh, very interesting In Ezekiel chapter 9, the same sort of thing is happening. Now, uh, in similar language, before judgment falls on Jerusalem, this is 500 years before the Lord appeared at Bethlehem, uh, God commands the same sort of thing. So an angel to place, listen, to place a mark on the, the forehead of those in Jerusalem who had not denounced the Lord, and they would be spared. Here's the word in the Hebrew for mark. Place a mark on the forehead. The mark, the the Hebrew word is tov. It's a Hebrew letter. And here's the mark of ancient tov, how it's written. What a coincidence. Man, there are sure a lot of coincidences in the Bible. Amen? Not, of course. What are the odds? that the mark would be in the shape of a cross. Now, the Hebrew letter Tav these days is not written in the same way. But if you look up in a lexicon, a Hebrew lexicon, or Strong's Concordance for Tav, for the word used to mark on their forehead, you will get this definition, a sign in the form of a cross used to brand possessions. So just an awesome thing. So they're set apart to do God's work And now, so we've met group one, the evangelists who can't die. Now to group two, the evangelized who do die. Verse nine. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Now here's a song that starts with amen and ends with amen. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The one of the elders, then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, "Uh, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So Roman numeral number two, the Gentile believers. Now the word Gentile is translated from the Greek word ethnos, which just means nations. So when you see the word nation in the Bible, it is the same word for Gentile and can go nations or Gentile. Uh, the, really, the nuance is non-Jewish nation would be the Gentiles. And so another quick change of scenes here. Uh, we're before the throne of God again with this distinct group of people, um, many people, And now the Lord wants to introduce to us and to those reading the prophecy of this book uh, fully who these people are. We've met them earlier, but it seems like that was back in the early days. Things are incomplete. They are being martyred. And we hear from them crying out for vengeance that their blood on the earth would be vindicated. But now we see kind of fast forward to the end of the tribulation and the destinies of those who are martyred during that awful time. So let's take a a little closer look. Uh, Verses 9 and 10, it's a huge number of people in heaven uh, from this group, impossible for one man to count. That's amazing. And they're singing and praising God for salvation, having come through this terrible time. So point number one here would be people get saved after the rapture. People get saved after the rapture. Now, there's a controversy about this, and many of you have already talked to me about it. It arises from that verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me, before I show it to you on the screen, let me give you some context. Uh, The Christians at Thessalonica were afraid that they had missed the rapture and the day of the Lord had already passed. They've been told that by some uh, nonsense, false teaching, and so... Paul says, whoa, hold on, folks. That day can't come unless the Antichrist is revealed to the world. And he goes on and he says, uh, 
And now you know, now you know what is holding him back, the Antichrist, right, is holding him back. And now you know what is holding the Antichrist back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Now, this verse has um, caused people to think that in a really real way, the Holy Spirit and the church, the Holy Spirit is in the church. The only reason we are the church is because the Holy Spirit indwells our hearts, right? So when he is taken out of the way and the Antichrist is revealed, not only is he taken out of the way, but we in him are curious phrase taken out of the way and then who can be saved if the holy spirit is responsible for regenerating people's souls how can somebody get saved who rejected christ in this life we disappear and then they're able to get saved it doesn't sound likely to half of the commentators and the other half say, well, the Holy Spirit is present because he is the third person of the Trinity, and in a sense, he can be removed in his ministry in the church, but still be present because he's the third person of the Godhead. In other words, for example, take God the Son, Jesus Christ. He existed before his time in Bethlehem. In the Old Testament, he manifests himself as the angel of the Lord, right? And then in the fullness of time, that's Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, in the fullness of time, Jesus incarnated himself through the Holy Spirit through a virgin womb and became the image of the invisible God. The God-man was among us 33 years, right? And now, as he's departing, this is the key, as he's departing, what does he say? Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, as he's leaving, leaving, he's saying, I am with you always. So in one sense, yeah, his days on the earth were over and that ministry done, but he still remains. And, and that's the concept here for those who are hung up on this verse, that, that we couldn't have life. The 144,000 uh, Jews who become Christians, they couldn't do that without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so there is hope that the Holy Spirit remains alive and well during the tribulation. Um, now, once again, in this description, as we kind of wind down here, the idea here about this group, first of all... Uh, a recurring theme that God's love is is diverse. It's for everybody. It's universal. It's inclusive. And you're always hearing throughout Revelation that God is after every tongue, every people, every language, uh, because that's how He is. When the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis 12, He says, "Through you, all nations will be blessed. Israel is well loved." And very privileged. But Israel is an open door for God to come in through her and get the whole world. 
He's always had his eye on the world. He says in Isaiah, the prophet, look to me to the ends of the earth and be saved, says the Lord, the God of all mankind. And so that's what we see there. Now they're waving palm branches, these who have been martyred in the great tribulation. What's up with the palm branches? When's the last time you saw people waving palm branches in the Bible? Palm Sunday. What were they doing? They were fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 14 where they received the king coming into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, spreading out palm branches before him, right? That didn't go very well because a week later, the same ones crying Hosanna were crying crucify. Now, at, toward the end of the tribulation, all Israel shall be saved. A massive conversion of the nation during the tribulation through Armageddon at the last second, they come to know him. So this palm uh, waving is a signal. Israel's being reconciled, receiving her king and the nations, believing nations with her, receiving Christ as he is, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So as we continue on with the verse, we see heaven's a place of worship. Verses 11 and 12 uh, the, the four mysterious creatures, the elders who seem to be linked to the church and the angels all joining in, prostrating themselves uh, before the Lord and singing a simple song, just listing God's attributes here. Uh, we've been down this road before. It's a similar song as they've sung before. Lord, you're smarter and wiser than anybody else. You're stronger and more powerful than anybody else. You're more honorable than anyone we know. You're our God forever, and thank you. Now, I like how one writer put it, thankfulness in worship is a sure sign that God has done a work in your heart. And unfortunately, the converse is quite true. Now, finally, a very important and intriguing question, and always know this. When heaven asks a question, uh, they already know the answer, but they're asking a question to make a statement, all right? And so, uh, finally, this intriguing question, uh, who might these be? So the elder, representing really the church, is saying to John, you see everybody there? That's a big number. Huh? Who are they? Because we want everybody to know they're a distinct group. Who are they and where did they come from? Because we just want to underline this in case people think, is that the church? Oh, no, we don't want them to think that they're the church because they're not the church. They're the tribulation saints. There's no mention of church here. And so he says, who are they? And, and you know what? I'm going to model this. If anyone asks me a question in heaven that I don't know, I'm going to just do what John does. You know. <laughs> That's the best way to answer. Sir, you know. And so he answers, and here's what he says in the Greek. These are they who came out of the tribulation, the great one. That is in the Greek. Now, when you use the article the, it's very rare, and it's very important. 
So, I mean, Jesus said, hey, uh, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. There's no the in front of that. It's just general trouble. But when you say the tribulation, comma, the great one, we understand this is a title for the day of the Lord. And so he's saying these are the folks that came out of the great tribulation. And P.S., they may be a distinct group from the church, but they got saved in the same way the church did. They washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb, and that's how. They didn't get saved because they stood up to the Antichrist, and they didn't take the mark of the beast, though. Those are true things. But they're not in heaven cleansed of their sins because of their great courage or that they were martyred. They're in heaven because they they did what you did. They received Christ. They believed upon him. They understood that that cross was where I belonged, where you belonged. And that blood washes their sin-stained soul clean. How? Well, those sins, that sin stained indelibly upon the fabric of your soul can't be removed. But if you take a solvent that was the payment for the cause of that stain, then you remove the stain because the cause of the stain, the payment for that stain is coming in contact. Oh, yeah, it erases it as good as new because it's been paid for. So just beautiful imagery there. Finishing up uh, verses, rather, 15 through 17. My favorite part, a beautiful affirmation for those courageous believers who resisted taking the mark of the beast. Now, think about it. Now, 15, 16, and 17 are basically a shout-out for what they went through and God honoring them and keeping in mind that saying, out of my 6,000 years of human history, nobody had it harder than you. Nobody. And yet you maintained my name. Nobody had to live through the deception of the, the Antichrist and with his signs and miraculous uh, false signs and wonders. You know he gets a bullet to the head and dies and Satan incarnates him in a mock resurrection from the dead because Satan wants to counterfeit God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Satan... His son, the Antichrist, and the Holy Spirit, the false prophet. Death and resurrection. He wants the whole thing, and he's saying, these folks maintain their Christian lives when not able to buy or sell. They were hungry and thirsty and starving. He said, take the mark, and your kid will stop crying of hunger. Or are you going to watch your own kid starve to death? Take the mark. And they said, no. We'd rather die with our children than to bow to that beast. And he's called a beast. And God just gives them a shout out, 15 through 17. And you see kind of a privilege they get in the new kingdom. Day and night. You don't have day and night in the eternal kingdom at the end. Day and night only for a thousand years. So we're talking about day and night they serve the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. 
There's no temple at the end in the eternal state. There's no temple and there's no day and night. The Lord just lights the place. We don't need the sun anymore. But for 1,000 years on earth, you have a temple and you have day and night. And these folks are front and center. They serve him day and night in the temple. We do not. That is not the language used of the church. The language used of the church is that we reign with him. Yes, in a general sense, we're serving, but that's not the language. We're not day and night in the temple serving the Lord. They are. Now, every group of believers seem to have their privileges. The Old Testament saints, men alive, come on, a pillar of fire to guide them at night and keep them warm. Manna falling from heaven, uh, water springing from a rock, and oh, oh, we've got a dead end here at the Red Sea. <sighs> he parts the Red Sea for them. And you've got all of those names and the temple and the high priest and the commandments. It's great to be an Old Testament saint. And from them, the Messiah, God the Son. Beautiful. The church, indwelled by God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, not like the Old Testament, not like the tribulation saints. United to Christ as co-heirs with him, he calls us his bride. He becomes one with us. That's two thumbs up, folks. <laughs> the tribulation saints, millennial kingdom, they're up in front, center. He says, I'll shepherd them. They have, if you will, a special relationship with me. He says, never again will any sun scorch on them. Because why? They lived through when the sun was doing the supernova things. It'll say, coming up, the sun goes out of control and it scorches people. And it scorched them. And they did not denounce the name of Jesus Christ. He says, oh, I just want you to know, special relationship with those who live through that agony of hunger and thirst and having had to be decapitated. That is the method of the last day martyrdom. I'm sure there's lots of other ways, but the number one way that keeps being brought up in Revelation is being beheaded. And he says, listen, I'm their shepherd now. I spread my tent out over these guys. Day and night, you want to get to me? You'll have to talk to them. <laughs> That's the kind of understanding. It doesn't work completely, but you get it. He's giving them affirmation, and, and, and they deserve it. I can't wait to applaud them, people like that. It's a big wow. And so what the bottom line is this. Here's the point of those last couple phrases. God didn't miss a thing. Every tear will have a corresponding comfort. Every trouble rightly handled, a commensurate blessing. Every sacrifice, a fitting reward. Every effort we made on earth, every pain, every sorrow, every tear. What, would, what is it? Psalm 56 and verse 8 that says, he keeps our tears in bottles. It's a poetic way of saying there's a record of every grief that his people bear. 
And he says, why? For our, for our reference for when we see him. He's saying, oh, yeah, here's this reward. And we'll be like, well, what's that about? And he said, oh, oh you thought I forgot? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I didn't forget about that. Do you remember the time when uh, that pain went straight through your heart? And you kept praying and you kept a sweet spirit about it. You remember that, right? You thought I was going to let that go by. Are you kidding me? Here, this. This is the understanding that God doesn't let anything go. He says, down to the cup of cold water. He says, I got it all. The things that you've done outwardly and the things that you have borne for the kingdom of God inwardly. The bloody battle that we quietly rage in quiet lives of desperation so that we can comply with the word of God and be pleasing to the Holy Spirit. It's a bloody battle inside. And the Lord's going to say, oh, man, I saw that. Nobody else knew what you were struggling with and you struggled 30, 40 years with it unto me. And I know. And here, now I have a friend who struggles. He's been clean a long time, alcohol and drugs. He said, you have no idea. But years and years and years, and it's every day a battle, and every day every cell in my body wants to do the wrong thing, and every day by the power of the Holy Spirit, I say, no, no. But I'm frustrated all day long because I, I can't have what my body is craving. And it doesn't go away, but I live this way because I'm a Christian and I know the truth. And he said, one day the Lord put it in his head. When he said, no, the Lord said, I have something for you. And he connected every time that he inwardly dies and has pain and he denies himself that the Lord whispered, said, I've got something for that. I've got something to give to you as a thank you for that. That's not going to waste. I'm keeping record of every single time you said no for Christ. I deny myself. I'm keeping records. You will not be standing there thinking, what about this? What about that? You'll be reminded of things you long forgot and just thought, hey, that was just my Christian duty. He said, I know it was your Christian duty, but I want to say thank you. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we are just so humbled. We, we who so unworthy, we know exactly what we are without your grace. Like Paul the Apostle said, apart from you, there's nothing good inside of us, nothing worthy of eternal life and eternal reward. Thank you for loving us, even though. Thank you for your grace that is greater than all of our sin, your love and your mercy that knows no limits. We just, we're so thankful. In Christ's name, amen.